1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Thank you for being here tonight and making your effort to be here a little bit earlier. That's a blessing. Praise the Lord for that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophecies, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Would you notice verse 19 tonight? And here in this verse is the secret, if you would, or or the command of God of how to keep the fire that God started in our heart to keep it burning. And uh, in the Greek is basically two words. Here in the English, it's four words. But it's basically quench not the spirit. Don't extinguish the flame. Don't put out the fire that God has started in you tonight. We want to look at the Holy Spirit and His work and ministry in our life and pertaining specifically to the sustaining of the fire of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Now, Father, bless our service tonight. Use it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but Sunday night was kind of hard to say goodbye to our missionaries. Um, for me, I've been to many, many missions conferences, but that was probably the best missions conference for me personally that I think I've been under. And for many reasons, it was definitely God-blessed. I don't think what happened there on the, during that week from Wednesday through Sunday, none of it was an anomaly. None of it was a mistake. It was God's hand upon the church, God's hand upon his messengers. It was Christ-exalting. Most importantly, I would say there was spirit-anointed. I believe that every message was prayed over. Every messenger had the anointing of God on him. I believe God used him in a specific way. And, uh, you know, when we think about the word of God, the seed of God's word was uh, generously and powerfully and lovingly sown into our hearts. I think we, it was interesting. I walked into the men's discipleship class night, and they were just discussing that for a few moments and just some of the things that were triggered in the minds of some of the men as they were talking about some things they heard. And I think we can all say that there were some things that God gave us that was a blessing. Now, I think the challenge for that, for all of us, is that of a conference like that, how to keep the fire going. When you go to, uh, you're a teenager, you go to a camp, or we, like we used to have in the past, family camps, how do you keep the fire going? How do you keep this going on? And Paul's writing to a, a very dynamic church. He's talking to a church, he's writing to a church, as we'll go back and see a little bit later on. In chapter 1, there was a powerful church, and a church in many ways that identified with what we would call a New Testament Baptist church. And he, he makes just this very simple statement as he talks about, uh, in this passage of Scripture, of uh, of knowing the leadership that's over you, and and uh, be, be you know to, to, he says to warn them they're unruly and comfort the feeble-minded, and he talks about rejoicing evermore, and he talks about praying without season, which we saw last time, and, and everything gives thanks. And then right in the middle of all that, he just pops his quench not the spirit. He just says, hey, I want to tell you, you got a good thing going, but don't let it cease. Now we know that the spirit of God can be affected by us. We know that in, in Acts seven fifty five. That was 750, Acts chapter 7, verse 51, that the unsaved Jews resisted the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, Stephen said to them, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. We know in Acts chapter, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. Listen to what he says, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. 
The word grieve, when it's used, they're speaking about uh, a relationship where we have a relationship with someone we're close to. And when that person passes away, or there's a, we're mourning their passing. And literally what he's saying there in Ephesians 4.30, that when we grieve the Holy Spirit of God, it's, it's something we do or things that we do that cause a spirit of mourning in the, in the Holy Spirit of God. He says, grieve not the Spirit. Don't produce, don't, don't have a, a disposition that would lead the Holy Spirit to be, to be grieved in that way. And he says, whereby you're sealed to the day of redemption. So we understand another thing. We look at Ephesians, uh, excuse, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, and we see here that the Holy Spirit not only can be resisted, and the Holy Spirit can only be, be, be grieved, but we see in verse 19, the Holy Spirit can be quenched. He's affected by us. Now, again, as we look at the church at Thessalonica, and I'll get more into this a little bit later, this was a church that knew something about the power of the Holy Spirit. This was a church that knew something about having service after service where God's power was evident and souls were being saved. Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, that they knew something about the joy of the Holy Spirit. It was a dynamic church. It was a church that glorified God. It was a soul-winning church. We read all about that. It was a mission-centric church. It was a giving church. We know that as Paul writes to the Philippian believers there in, first, in Philippians chapter 4, he talks about them and the believers at Thessalonica giving to him once and again. So they were mission-centric. They were a faith-promised church. It was a church going forward. But Paul saw some things, and he was very prophetic in his way. He saw some things uh, along the way that as a, as a church planter, as an apostle, as an evangelist, as a man of God, as a prophet of the Lord, a man who, who was greatly used of God, he saw some things because there had been in many churches. He saw some things that, uh, that were kind of eroding away at the heart, the spirit of the church. And he makes a statement, not in a, not in a if you would, in a rebuking manner, if you would, but he makes a statement in a loving manner, yet very firm. He says, quench not the spirit. And so tonight I want us to study that phrase. I want us to look at it tonight and turn it upside down and, and right side up and see what it means to us. Because Paul did not say this statement, quench not the Holy Spirit, because it, that, that, it's, that it could happen, that, that, but he said it because it would happen. And I think if we know anything about our Christian lives, and if you've been saved for any period of time, you've experienced, just like I've experienced and many others experienced, and I'll tell you, <coughs> the preachers who are on this platform, last several days experience, we've experienced those moments and seasons when we felt like the fire started to subside and there was a diminishing of the enthusiasm and the passion started to go down and we could feel like sometimes as maybe as a preacher's gotten up and preached from Revelation 2 about the church at Ephesus, we can feel a sense that yes, he's talking to me. We feel like the, the fire and the zeal and the passion went out and that's a very real, real uh, challenge that every Christian can have. We can find that we can go long seasons doing the same thing in the same way that we find that the zeal and the fire and the passion is not there like it used to be. Or maybe we hit a season of discouragement and we find that the, the fire starts to go out. And so Paul recognized that. He recognized that we fight with the sin nature. And he recognized that as, as a church that at Thessalonica, that they, that they needed to be reminded about the, the working of the Holy Spirit in life and how to keep the Holy Spirit at its maximum in, his, in your life and mine. So tonight, we want to look at the subject of quench not the Spirit. Four things I want you to see tonight, because we're going to be spending some time about the Holy Spirit this evening and just kind of working our way there because we have a good mixture of believers here tonight. Number one, I want you to notice the comforting inhabitant. The comforting inhabitant. The first thing we want to know, notice tonight is the working of the Holy Spirit in your life and mine. We must understand why is the Holy Spirit in us? <coughs> How does he get inside of us? And uh, what, what is the purpose behind that? We want to see him as the comforting inhabitant. Now, number one, I want you to write this down. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is a person, okay? We know that he can, he, he's, uh, he's touched like we are. He can be grieved. He can be quenched. He can be resisted. So he's a person. He's not just a person. He's God. Amen? He's God. And I think we have to remind ourselves, <coughs> we think about 1 John 5, 7, 
as it speaks about the Godhead, he is the third member of the Godhead. He's equal with the Godhead. He's eternal with the Godhead. <coughs> he's essential with the God. He is as God as Jesus Christ. He's as God as God the Father. He's not lesser. He's not greater. He's the same as the Godhead. I like the term Godhead because the Trinity is a good name, but Godhead is a biblical name. Right, man? When we talk about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is God. So when we look at him, we need to notice here tonight what happens to an individual who calls on the name of the Lord as a Savior. Now remember I said he's the comforting inhabitant. Well, notice, first of all, the Holy Spirit, is the, as he inhabits us, it begins through the work of regeneration. He regenerates us. Notice Titus 3, 5. And I want us to look at that, especially for new believers <coughs> or people that are battling with someone who talks about work, works-based salvation. I want you to notice Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. Now what he's saying there is that it doesn't matter how many good works we do, good works cannot save you. You can never do enough good works to get to heaven. Good, there are no good works that can qualify you into heaven. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. There's no merit that I can do or you can do that can get you into heaven. Now tonight if you're struggling about this matter of your eternal security and you're struggling, you've got doubts, and don't feel bad if you do because many people do. But, and we're going to try to fix that tonight. But if you're struggling with it, it's probably because you're so, you're probably thinking in your mind, you've got to do something to please God. Now, please understand this tonight. You don't do the saving and the keeping. God does the saving and the keeping. All the keeping is his responsibility. It's not your responsibility. It's not the church's responsibility. It's not a preacher's responsibility. It's not an evangelist's responsibility. It's not a missionary's responsibility. All the keeping and all the saving is by God himself. And I would encourage you, if you're struggling with that thought about your eternal security, get letter A from our discipleship class and go through letter A, and all we, we list out there all the verses of the New Testament that give you ample assurance of your salvation in Jesus Christ here. Now, what I want you to notice, though, we're not getting on eternal security for, for that matter, but notice this. It talks about the saving work of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one that saves. When you go soul winning, you and I do not save the individual. Can you hear an amen about that, right? We don't save the individual, okay? If we're making that statement or claim we are wrong doctrinally, we're not right with God. The Holy Spirit does the saving. Look at Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to, notice this, his mercy, he saved us. Hey, thank God for the mercies of God. Somebody asked me the other day, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't understand. How, how, could, how could God, how, why, why would God save a sinner like me? And I said, well, God is your judge, but God is also merciful. And, his, his, and he exercises mercies. By his mercy, he saves us. This verse tells us that here. But according to his mercy, he saved us. Notice, by the washing, tells us the means, by the washing of regeneration. Now, the word regeneration is the same word we get our word born again from. It speaks about being the new birth or being born again. He says, the new birth produces the cleansing of our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. So by the washing regeneration, and notice the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The word renewing is where we get the idea of a new man in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Here's what I want to simply tell you tonight. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you repent of your sins and call on the Lord as your Savior, and the Holy Spirit of God does this work that's, that's simply described here in Titus 3, 5. There's the washing regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And what goes on inside of us is not a matter of feeling. It's because of faith. And we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Say, Here's what happens. The Holy Spirit does the saving. The saving work of the Holy Spirit is instantaneous. It's immediate. The moment you trust Christ, there you're saved. You can point to the fact that once you're saved, you are always saved there. So we thank God tonight for the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. But notice, secondly, the Holy Spirit ratifies. 
Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1 and notice verses 13 to 14. And these are important verses for you as you are learning the, learning the Bible and you're trying to figure out and determine the Holy Spirit's role in your life. I want you to notice how the Holy Spirit ratifies. Now, this is important. At what point does the Holy Spirit come into your life? He comes into your life the moment you get saved. He immediately inhabits you. He immediately indwells you. He immediately lives inside of you. How do we know that? Look at Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14, one of many verses. Look what it says there. In whom ye also trusted, speaking about Jesus Christ, in whom you also trusted. After that ye heard the word of truth, okay, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. He says the gospel of your salvation. Now, always remember this. The gospel is about the saving work of Jesus Christ. If somebody brings you another gospel that doesn't preach about the saving work of Jesus Christ, it's a false gospel. There's only one true gospel. There's not multiple gospels. There's only one true gospel. In this day and age of confusion, this day and age of false religion, this day and age of charismatic movements and all of that stuff, you must remember tonight that there's only one true gospel, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for your sins. He was buried, and he rose again. And listen, we thank God that the gospel of Jesus Jesus Christ is the power of God and the salvation. Now he says, in whom also you trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now did you notice he put a colon there? He says, in whom also after that ye believe. Now this is a simultaneous, simultaneous uh, emotion here. In whom also after you, you believe, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Invisibly, God put his marker on us. Do you remember there, if you've read through the book of Ezekiel, remember in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 9, God raised up these men with ink horns, remember that? And he said, put a mark on, this, on these certain people there. And this marker was to identify them because God sent a slaughter crew in, into town and started killing off people who were, who, were, who, were, who were not living for God. And God, through his sealing, puts a marker on us like those men in Ezekiel chapter 9. There is a marker of God he puts on you. Now, we don't see it. But we know this, that in the invisible in the invisible realm, the demons of hell see it, see it. And they recognize that moment of salvation, that you belong to God, and Jesus Christ is your Savior. There's this identifier that's invisibly set upon you and I that identifies we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, a seal was very important in, in, in law. It's very important today. If you, for instance, some of you who are in business or have been in the legal field, you know this. When, when you incorporate a business, if you incorporate uh, you place upon the corporate charter the seal of the state of California. Now that certifies that the corporation is valid and legal. And sometimes the, 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 the lawyers and people like that will want to see your corporate papers to see if the seal is on. They need to see documentation that the seal is there. Now the seal is important. We know in Roman law when they put a seal on something, it, it represented the government authority. It represented ownership. It represented you to be in submission to that. And when God put his Holy Spirit on us, he sealed us with that Holy Spirit of promise. Now he's called the Holy Spirit of promise because Jesus... Jesus said, when I'm ascended to heaven, I will send you another comforter. Now, what he meant by that, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. I'm going to send the paraclete, the one who comes alongside of you, the one who will be your best friend, because that's what the word paraclete means, someone who's just like your good friend. I'm going to send him. He will be in my place, and he will speak of me and glorify me, and he will be your teacher in all things. So notice, we're sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So notice this. If you're struggling with this matter of am I really saved, Number one, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You belong to God. It's settled. The transaction's done, okay? No one's going to remove that seal. No one's going to take away. It's the seal of God. Then notice, secondly, in verse 14, we see something else that's wonderful. He ratifies us through the earnest of our inheritance. Let's read that. Which is, that's speaking of the Holy Spirit, which is the earnest of our inheritance 
until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Now, what's he saying there, okay? Well, we're not in heaven yet. And we're not, we're not, we don't have glorified bodies yet. That happens when we get to heaven. The final process of our salvation is glorification. There's justification, that, that is the penalty of sin is removed. Then there's, there's sanctification, which we're living now, that the power of sin, we're not under the power of sin. And then we notice when we get, when we get to heaven, when we're, we're glorified, glorification, the, the presence of sin, we're removed from the presence of sin there. And so when we get here, notice he says here, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. He comes in as the earnest of our inheritance. And what that means is the word earnest was an old, old English financial term, which means we would say good earnest, which meant a down payment. So in other words, the Holy Spirit living inside of you and I is God's down payment until we get to heaven. He calls that, in verse 14, the, uh, the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Here's what I'm just trying to help you understand. When he seals us and he lives inside of us as the earnest of our inheritance, he basically represents this one thing, that God, God owns us. And he represents one thing, that he inhabits us, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and nobody can do something about it. You can't kick the Holy Spirit out of your life, okay? I mean, you just, I hate to tell you this, but you're stuck with him, amen? He's going to stay inside you there. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 helps us with that, as we'll see in just a moment there. But we want to understand tonight, he ratifies the salvation process after we call on Jesus Christ by sealing us and being the earnest of our inheritance. But here's the good part. And as the, as the comforting inhabitant, he resides within us. He lives inside of you and I. Look again at what the Bible says in Romans 8, 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now that's the important phrase. The spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Now, if you're not saved, the spirit of God is not in you. and You're not part of his. And I would tell you tonight, you better get saved tonight. Amen. But it, because you are saved. But because you are saved, the Spirit of God indwells you. And so because of that, he lives inside you. He indwells you. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Paul said this, what? Know ye not that your body, that you've been, that, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God, which is in you? And that you've been bought with a price? He says, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. So he's telling us that when the Holy Spirit indwells us, our body becomes his temple. It becomes his tabernacle. It becomes his residence. Hey, listen, people ask you this question. Give us your, your, your residence. Give us your address. We don't want your mailing address. We want to know where you live. The Holy Spirit is not a P.O. box. He lives right inside of you, amen? He lives right inside of your life and mine. He indwells us. He resides in us. And that's a wonderful thing. We must understand this. We get into talking about the Holy Spirit of God tonight. Now, he's our comforter. He's our best friend. He guides us into all truth. Hey, he intercedes for us. Here's what's really neat. Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and me, a lot of us in this room, we have challenges and we have difficulties and being able to communicate or articulate to God what we're trying to say. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I, I feel for people sometimes who really, you, you're, they're trying to describe what's in their mind, their heart. They really can't get it out, but you watch their body language, their hand motions, and the little words they give here and there, you kind of get a rough, rough idea of what they're trying to say. Now, the Holy Spirit understands you and I, that sometimes we are, we're just overwhelmed with our circumstances and overwhelmed with our suffering and overwhelmed with our trials, and, and maybe we're new Christians and we just don't really understand what's going on, and we'll hear Brother Irwin pray, and we'll think, man, will I ever be able to pray like that, you know? And we'll hear some sister in Christ pray in a prayer group, and you wonder, will I ever be able to pray like that? And yet, you know, as we think about our lack of words and our lack of articulation, the Holy Spirit, he helps us with that. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. He says this, because all of chapter 8 of Romans deals with our, with this matter of, of, of the Holy Spirit working in your life and indwelling in us, and he says this, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Now, you ought to underline that if you've never done that. He helps our infirmities. How many believe tonight that you're weak? I do. 
I'm weak, amen. I've got infirmities. I, I, I've got issues, okay, and so do you, okay. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Now, that should be a comfort to you. At the same time, that should be a challenge to you. For we know not what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So in other words, as we're writhing inside trying to figure out what to say and we're feeling so miserable because we feel like I don't even know how to tell God what's going on, the Spirit is making intercession for us on our behalf with groanings which cannot be uttered. So in other words, we don't even know the words. We don't even know what sounds to make. Amen? And so he's making this utterance for us. And then he says in verse 27, And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. You know, one thing about a prayer life is that we need to venture into new territory. We need to go into uncharted territory every now and then. And we need to exercise some faith. And we need to get a fresh new vision. And we need to get an idea from God what we're supposed to do. And when we do that, we get into this uncharted territory and we're trying to exercise new faith. We really don't know what to pray for. We really don't know what to say. And sometimes someone may drop a bomb on you and tell you something. You're feeling like, man, I what do I do with this situation? And that's where the Spirit of God compensates for our weakness, and he, and, he, and he supersedes our weakness and intervenes for us, and He intercedes for us. He searches the mind of our, our hearts, and, he, and because the mind of the Spirit, He makes intercession for us according to that. Now, why do I say all that? Because we have a comforting inhabitant. Listen, tonight, you ought to be thankful the Holy Spirit lives beside you. You ought to be thankful tonight He's your teacher. He guides you in all truth. Listen, before you read the Word of God, those of you struggling, just trying to understand God's Word, why don't you just pause for a moment and pray a prayer like this. Lord, May the Holy Spirit of God open my eyes. I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And then may you just say, Holy Spirit, illuminate your word to me. And Holy Spirit, be my teacher through the word. And you know what he does in those circumstances? He helps us. He gives us wisdom how to read the word. He gives us wisdom how to slow down. He gets us to slow down. He gets us to pause at even the commas. He gets us to pause at the words and to realize that there's something here that we missed before. And he helps us to understand God's words. When we come away from it, we have an answer from God there. And so we can pray for that. We can pray for the Holy Spirit to work through us in our prayer life. Every one of us should make a determination, especially after uh, Pastor Terry Unruh preached so powerfully over, over last week about prayer and fasting. Every one of us this week, and this semester, in fact, the, the, the staff and I were talking about that today in our staff meeting, about the necessity of now, because it's just kind of laid out there, we need, to, we need to go forward in prayer and fasting. But everybody here tonight should make a determination that prayer and fasting, you're going to major on that and not be the minor on that. You're going to make that the emphasis of your Christian life. So tonight we see the comforting in heaven. But quickly tonight, let's go a little bit further. Notice we see the consuming influence. Now we're talking about the Holy Spirit not just living in us. We're talking about the Holy Spirit's influence in us. Okay, now. Um, if you're somebody who rents a room out in your home and uh, you're collecting rent, whoever that renter is, they inhabit the place, a room, but you make sure through your rental agreement they don't influence you. Amen? Okay? They're not going to tell you to run your house. So you're going to put certain stipulations there. Okay? But <clears throat> in this case, notice this here. The Holy Spirit's not a renter. The Holy Spirit is not an inhabitant. The Holy Spirit, he owns this. He owns this. Can I amen? He owns this, okay? You don't own it. The title deed is in the blood of Jesus Christ. Did you hear what I said? You've been bought with a price. You've been bought with a price. The price was the blood of Jesus Christ, Acts 20, 28, whom God purchased with his own blood. So <clears throat> as we look at this tonight, we see the Holy Spirit of God not only wants to, it not only inhabits us, but he wants to influence us. 
He wants to be the controlling influence in our life. In fact, we must yield to him so he is the controlling influence in our life. So I want you to see the Spirit's working in our life. Number one, would you write this down? We must follow the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 14, would you go there, please? We must follow the Spirit. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now this morning, this evening, have you been led by the Spirit today? Or did you lead yourself? We must follow the Spirit. For as many as are led of the Spirit, they are the sons of God. Now notice this tonight. He leads us through the illumination of the Scriptures. Why is it important for you to read the Bible? How are you going to know what the Spirit wants you to do if you're not reading the Word of God? Amen? We, we are led by the illumination of Scriptures. Hey, we're led by prayers and intercessions. How many of us understand tonight that many times when we come up, we feel like we're hitting our head against the wall, and we feel like we're just, we're not making anywhere, we're not going anywhere, and the door seems closed. We get to praying, and the Holy Spirit just opens our eyes, and he helps us to see what we need to do. I find that almost every day that happens in my life, there's something I'm getting, the Lord speaks to me out. Now, let me, let me give this to you. You might want to put this in your notes if it's not there. It is God's will that all of his children are spirit-led. It is God's will that all of his children are spirit-led. Now, listen. When we're led by the Spirit, he gives us our thoughts. Proverbs 16, 3, commit thy works unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. Did you hear what he said? He didn't say, tell God what you want to do. He said, commit your works to God, and he will give you your thoughts. Now, here's, here's where the conflict comes to play. Our will fights against his will. And when our will fights against his will, we give God the suggestion that what we want to do, that's not how God works. What he's saying to you and I is, okay, this is, this is Lord, what I'm supposed to do, but now, Lord, what do you want me to do? And, and let him direct your thoughts on that, okay? I think that's true of preachers. Many times we may see a, pe a passage of Scripture, and, uh, and we have a sense because we've looked at it before where we're going to go, but the Holy Spirit says, wait, commit thy work to the Lord. I'm going to preach the message on this passage. Let him lead you. Let him give your thoughts. And then notice something else we find in Proverbs 16:9. When the, when the Spirit leads us, our steps are established. So notice this. Our thoughts are established. Our steps are established. Okay, we're led by the Spirit of God. Watch what he says here. In Psalms 37, 23, he says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in the way. How does that ordering happen? Through the Holy Spirit of God. Proverbs 16, 9. A, man, a man's heart devises way, but the Lord directeth his steps. We're praying for the leading of the Holy Spirit. He leads us in the way we should go. Now, let me give you some cautions tonight. Would you write this down? Let me give you some cautions about following the Spirit, okay? Number one, being led of this, being Spirit-led never contradicts the Word of God. Being Spirit-led never contradicts the Word of God. Now, you be careful. Many of you, listen, many of you say, well, I'm going to pray about it, but you didn't read the Word of God. I'm going to date that man and date that girl, but you didn't get God's approval from his Word. Hey, these building programs, I got God's approval from his Word. When I got God's approval from his Word, I could point to the verses and the books of the Bible where I got God's approval on it. Okay? I preached a message from Nehemiah chapter 2, and as we started, as we were about to begin the second building campaign, and I said, this is where God gave us our approval. We need to get God's approval. Listen, being led of the Spirit of God, he never contradicts his Word. Secondly, being Spirit-led never contradicts the spiritual authority God has placed in your life. Now, I don't know if any of you did this, but let me, get, let me give you some counsel next time a speaker comes. You ought to be asking a missionary especially, how did God lead you? How did God lead you? Can you, can you point to how the Spirit of God worked in your life? Because I'll tell you, if you listen to Brother Hetzer, especially Brother Hetzer right now because he's in a critical place in life, Brother Mislon, 
Brother Travis, Brother Unruh, okay, Brother Hoffman, all of them will testify they've seen in their life personally as well as those they minister to that they'll tell you the Spirit of God never contradicts the spiritual authority. Listen, before all those men, and I asked them about critical things in your life, before they made major decisions as they were being led by the Spirit of God, they went and sought out spiritual care. Hey, David Hetzer, if you were here on Friday night, he gave a great great message about how, how to discern the call of God. If you didn't get, attend that session, you need to get that. He gave a great message on that, and he referenced to the fact he went to probably as many as five or six men of God to get their counsel, and all of them said the same thing, but in a different way, but it was the same thing to coincide, to give affirmation to what God had placed in his heart there, okay? Hey, Acts chapter 13 is so critical. If you're called to the mission field, notice this. The Bible says in Acts chapter 13, as the church was, as they were ministering to the Lord and fasted, the Spirit said... The Spirit said. And then, as the Spirit said, who was it speaking to? We go back to verse 1. It was the five, the five men that were, were leading the church there. The, key, the, court, the, the senior pastor was Barnabas. And alongside him were, were Paul and the other men. And, and the Bible says, the Spirit said. And so those men, the ratification to that, those men fasted and prayed to get, to get the affirmation of God. They were all the same mind. The church was in approval of that, okay? So I'm just saying tonight, the Spirit being Spirit-led never contradicts the spiritual authority. Listen tonight, okay? If your mother, listen, Samson, Samson's a good example. Samson did not, he, he, he tried to tell his mom and dad, well, I like that Philistine woman that there in, 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 in the Judges chapter 14. I like the spiritual woman. His parents were not for that. He was going to get spiritual counsel. You need to follow spiritual counsel. Notice something else I want to give you tonight. The Holy Spirit never leads you to sin. He never leaves you, leads you to leave your marriage to go after somebody else. He never tells you to leave a church that's thriving and on fire for God. He never, listen, I've watched a lot of people leave. All those people who left were never led by the Spirit of God. The majority of them, I shouldn't say all, but the majority of them were not led by the Spirit of God. They were led by their own whatever had happened there. Now, can I tell you tonight, if you get hurt, that's not the reason to leave the church. That's not the reason to leave your marriage. That's not the reason to leave your friends. You get hurt, you know what you need to do? You need to suck it in and say, God, help me have a good spirit. And until God tells you to go, then you go. But God never leads you to do something in that nature. He never leads you to sin. Hey, listen, listen to this. The Holy Spirit never leads us to be divisive. The Holy Spirit, now listen to this. This is going to step on some toes tonight. You better put on your seatbelt. The Holy Spirit never leads you to take employment on the Lord's Day out of convenience. Now, we're, we're just, we're in this 21st century. And now understand, please understand me tonight. <coughs> There are jobs and occupations where people are mandated they have to do that. I'm not talking about that situation. I'm talking about somebody who voluntarily made a decision to work on Sundays because they weren't willing to take something else and sacrifice their sleep to do it for that way. So I'm just saying tonight, we misunderstand tonight, the Holy Spirit does not lead you to do something of that nature. Hey, the Holy Spirit does not lead you to give place to the devil. We must follow him. So notice tonight, as we consider the controlling influence of the Spirit, we must follow the Spirit. But very quickly tonight, notice there's the fruit of the Spirit. Now, Galatians chapter 5 describes to us as we, we work our way through there about law and grace. We get over to chapter 5 and realize in Galatians 5 about the liberty we have by the Spirit of God. And so Paul then goes from this point and he talks, okay, here's why you're, you're regressing. Here's why you're having trouble on, on, on these different things here. He says, you know what? He says the flesh lusteth or fights against the spirit. Now, this morning, when you woke up today, 
the first thing that happened to you, that, that happened in your life and happened in my life, the flesh was fighting you. Before you even got out of bed, the flesh was fighting you, okay? And then when you got out of bed, the flesh was fighting you. Even right now, the flesh is fighting you. The flesh is lusteth against the spirit. We are in a continual spiritual conflict with this old nature called the flesh. And so the flesh is fighting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And the Bible says these two are contrary one to the other. So what's the Bible tell us? Well, we need to walk in the spirit so we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, watch this tonight. The walk of the Spirit is critical to a successful Christian life. It is not an option. It is a mandate. Everyone tonight should have this earnest desire in your heart to walk in the Spirit of God. Now, how do I know if I'm walking in the Spirit of God? Well, there's the fruit that emanates from that. Notice in Galatians 5, verses 22, 23, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit. Now, when you're walking in the Spirit, there's the evidence of the Spirit, okay? Now, if you have a fruit tree in your, in your backyard, front, or whatever it may be, your fruit tree either is bearing fruit or doesn't bear fruit, okay? It's either one or the other. There's no middle ground, okay? It either has fruit or, has, or doesn't have fruit there, okay? And so, as a Christian, you and I are to be healthy walking trees, if I can say that, amen? We're to be healthy walking trees bearing good fruit. What fruit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, nine fruit of the Spirit. He says, against such there is no law. There is to be the evidence. But how do I know that I have the fruit of the Spirit? Well, if you go over to Ephesians chapter 5, and I think it's verse 9, it says this, the fruit of the Spirit, he says, is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So watch this tonight. Where there's goodness, where there's righteousness, where there's truth, there's the abundance of the fruit of the Spirit. And you have to notice something. As we think about the fruit of the Spirit, the low-hanging fruit of the Spirit is the love and the joy and the peace. But we've got to go up a little bit higher. As we get to the top, we find that to get to the top, if you're really going to enjoy the fruit of the Spirit, you want to get to where there's meekness and you want to get to where there's temperance because against such there is no law. We have to understand tonight, we're to pick all the fruit off the tree. My dad my dad has a, my father's, my mom's house and my dad's house, they have a, Santa Rosa plum tree. And I remember when we first moved that house in 1971, that Santa Rosa plum tree, man, that gave off several hundred pounds of Santa Rosa plums. I mean, it was just, and I'm talking about big, fat, juicy plums that were really, really good. And it, and it got to a place during the summer where we get all the low-hanging fruit off, but it came, but we'd look up there and we said, we better get up to the top before before the, the birds get to and take some of the best fruit. Because, man, we saw these huge plums hanging up there. And so either myself, and when I couldn't do it, and I, I wasn't, I just got to a certain height and I said, I'm not going any higher. My dad climbed all the way up in his, in his slippers. He climbed all the way up and he picked it off there. And he got all the low-hanging fruit off of there, and he brought it down, and we enjoyed it there, okay? Hey, that was a very fruitful tree, and we looked forward for many, many years for the fruit to come off that tree. Watch this tonight. God wants you and I, as, as for the controlling influence of the Spirit, when we're walking Spirit, that fruit is evident life. And listen tonight. Don't stop at love. Don't stop at joy. Don't stop at peace. May you just irrigate your life with the Word of God and saturate life, your life with prayer so the fruit of the Spirit results in all nine fruit of the Spirit, where there's meekness and temperance and gentleness and long-suffering, goodness and faith, produced in your life. I'm just saying tonight, when he's influencing our life, there's this abundance of fruit. Hey, some of us get around people, and I, I think we saw this in our missionaries this past week. These missionaries that were here, they have been walking in the Spirit. They've been living for God. They've been spending time in prayer. We gave them ample time during the day to make sure they had time to pray. And I just was sensitive to the fact, even with Brother Unruh, especially when he preached, I just was sensitive to get him back early enough so the man could have time to pray and get the mind of Christ. And listen, the power of God was all there, but I'll tell you, if you watch those, those, those missionaries, and I think of you and Brother Hetzer with two challenged, physically challenge children. There was a fruit of spirit in he and Amy. I mean, you look around Amy Hetzer. I mean, you talk about long-suffering. Listen, none of us collectively have anything near the long-suffering that lady has in taking care of those two children, which are just, just it, I could see how drained she was, but you could tell the w walking spirit that God's grace was all over her, working through that, and you could see the meekness and the servant's heart. I mean, I don't know about you, sometimes I get a little flustered by things, 
And when you get flustered, you have a tendency not to be very meek about things, amen, you know, not to be very teachable. They had the spirit of meekness in everything they did. And I'm going to tell you, these men of God, you know, sometimes we look at missionaries, like sometimes we look at them like second-class citizens. They don't only, those people are not second-class citizens. They walk with God. They know the Lord. They walk with God. And for nothing else, I would just have them here because they walk with God. You get more by watching somebody who's walking with God than hearing them preach. Anybody can get up and preach, but it's a whole different thing to walk with God. And they were walking the Spirit. And so we see there, we see we must follow the Spirit. We must have the fruit of the Spirit. But you notice Ephesians 5.18, we must have the filling of the Spirit. Now we're going somewhere. Are you with me tonight? We're talking about the controlling influence. He says, be not controlled or be not drunk with wine. I was going to ask how many of you have ever been drunk. Don't raise your hand, amen. To be drunk is intoxicated, inebriated. You're under the control of a different substance. You are not yourself. Good or bad, you're not yourself. Be not drunk with wine. That society in Ephesus, they were all drunkards. That's the kind of people who are getting saved in Ephesus, drunkards. There are some, there are some women that were so thankful their husband got saved out of drinking. And that's all they did was drink and party, drink and party, drink and party. He said, be not drunk with wine where where, where it's excess, but be filled with the Spirit of God. Now, the word filling means a continuous, repetitious filling of the Spirit. Now, let me give you some things tonight. The filling of the Spirit is the fire of God burning in your soul. We read over in Isaiah 4.4 that the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of burning. I love that. We read over in Isaiah 10, 17, that God refers to himself as the Holy One for a flame. You see, the Holy Spirit of God is the absolute necessity for power with God. Listen, if he's not, if he does, we don't have all the Holy Spirit, if he doesn't have all of us, we don't have all the Holy Spirit. There's a, there's go, see, when people struggle with I've read all these chapters and books and things, I just heard one thing. It basically boils down to this. If he doesn't have all of me, I can't get all of him. If there's other things filling it up, I can't have all the Holy Spirit of God. You take a container, and let's say if you want to fill that container with lemonade, but there's coffee, it's halfway filled with coffee, and it's not going to be a container filled with lemonade until you get all the coffee out and clean it out of all the residue, and then you can have it filled with lemonade. Hey, listen, until we get emptied of self and emptied of sin and emptied of our selfishness, the Holy Spirit of God cannot control you and I. And when he controls us, there is a fire, there is a burning, there is a consumption that the Spirit of God has. He has us right exactly where he wants us. Listen to me tonight. The filling of the Spirit is when your total capacity is his total control. I like what Oswald Smith said. He said, let me say that it's not a question of us getting more of the Holy Spirit, but rather of the Holy Spirit getting more of us. Listen tonight. The filling of the Spirit turns an ordinary man into a Samson who doesn't matter. He's outnumbered 1,001. He's, he's, he's an overcomer through Jesus Christ. The filling of the Spirit differentiates Elijah, the prophet of God on Mount Carmel, from 850 false prophets. The filling of the Spirit gave Paul boldness there on the island of Cyprus against a man as they contended for the soul of Sergius Paul. The Bible says then Paul filled with the Holy Spirit of God. I think Paul knew going on that island, I better be filled with the Spirit of God. Let me tell you tonight, don't treat your ministry and don't treat your class and don't treat people you minister to just as another week, as another, uh, just another time. Listen, we must be filled with the Spirit of God because if we're imparting spiritual truth and the things of God. We want those people to catch what God says. Hey, the filling of the Spirit, makes, uh, when we're filled with the Spirit of God, He makes clear His selection of the missionaries to be sent out of a local church. Listen, when the Spirit of God fills us, He restrains us from going 
going where we should not go. We read about that in Paul. Paul was filled with the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit forbade him not. Now, a lot of times we want God to open doors. There's some doors he just will not open. And we ought to be thankful tonight when the Holy Spirit does close the door, when the Holy Spirit does give us a detour, when the Holy Spirit does say no. Listen, because God's purposes are bigger than ours, God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Samuel Chadwick, you ought to get his books on prayer. Oh, my stars, it will help your soul. He said this, destitute of the fire of God, nothing else counts. But possessing the fire of God, nothing else matters. Is the fire of God raging your heart? Is there burning in your soul? Is the filling of the Holy Spirit so consuming you? It's like what I pray for now in my life and I pray for others. I pray that we would drip with the Holy Spirit of God when he fills us. So we see the controlling influence. We see the company inhabitant. What you notice tonight, the careless inhibiting. And this takes us back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In verse 19, Paul said, quench not the Spirit. As I was studying through 1 Thessalonians, I noticed that most of what Paul had to say about the Holy Spirit was in the first two chapters. This church didn't have a problem with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. They didn't have trouble like the church at Corinth. This church didn't have any trouble about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. They, they had their pneumatology down. And this was a church, as we read it, go back to chapter 1 with me. This was a very dynamic church. Look at chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. 5, 6, 7, and 8. For gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. And in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. You now Paul is referring to the fact they were really stressed out. And he says, man, we, were, we gave our all, we gave our best, and we were under persecution. And he says, and ye, and he says, in spite of all that stress, ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so we need not to speak anything. And what's he saying there? Hey, watch this. This was a dynamic church. This was a church that was a gospel-preaching church. This was a church that was on fire for God. This was a church that made the gospel the priority. This was a church that was mission-centric. This was a church, in fact, we read Acts chapter 20, we read about two men that accompanied Paul on the ship journey. I believe those were two men that they sent out of their church to learn about the ministry, and they were praying that one day would be missionaries. And I believe Aristarchus was a missionary sent out of that church. We read about this church being mission-centric. We read about this church being giving to missions in Philippians chapter 4. We read about this church enduring persecution. Hey, we read about this church church of Thessalonica, these are they which have turned the world upside down. Read about a man named Jason in that church who was persecuted, and they charged him a fee because he had Christians in his home. They said, but he went on, and they kept on serving Jesus Christ. And these are people that built a church in spite of persecution and all those difficulties. Here was a church that had the fire of God burning in their hearts, but Paul saw some signs. He saw that the, there was a diminishing of the Holy Spirit of God in what they did. Listen, tonight, we can tell the signs. There's a diminishing of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. When there's a cessation of soul winning, there's a cessation of participation. When the giving goes down and we don't enjoy the preaching anymore and our spirit becomes more critical and we're not thankful for the things of God and we become more critical instead of becoming thankful and we've lost the joy of the Lord and we've got a sour look on our face and we have no desire for God to work us. Hey, when all those things are evidence, we read 1 Thessalonians 5, there's been a quenching of the Spirit of God. The word quench means to extinguish. How many of you go camping? How many of you ever made a fire? How many of you done a barbecue? Made a fire. It's important to have that fire, is it not? And if you're not very careful, if you don't attend that fire, what happens to that fire? 
birds out. And if you're not very careful, you could smother that fire with dirt and you'll put it out. Or you can throw cold water on that, on that fire and it's going to go out. And you get in a fire blanket that's made of asbestos and fire retardant material and you can smother that, that flame and put it out. And I'll remind you tonight, when the Holy Spirit of God gets to work in your heart like he did in this missions conference, and he moves in your heart to give, and I'll remind you tonight, as he moves in your heart to win souls, and to tell somebody about the gospel, and to get fervent for Jesus Christ, and to help in a Sunday school campaign, I'm going to tell you something tonight, the, 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 the Holy Spirit's working, but the devil's working overtime too, and the Holy Spirit of God, well, he's trying to protect that fire to keep it burning and burning and burning, but Paul's saying this, listen, it's not the devil I'm so much worried about, it's you and I I'm worried about, but he's telling, he's telling them, Listen, the quenching of the Holy Spirit is something that you produce. It's something that you do. It's something you cause. And we're not very careful. And we're careless in our, in our devotions. And we're careless about our prayer time. And we're careless about our giving. And we're not paying attention to soul winning. And we start getting sloppy about coming to church. And we're never there on time when we should be. And we don't know if you're coming. And we don't know if you're going. And you're not giving accountability. And you're being spiteful of authorities. Let me tell you tonight, those are surely the signs that there's a diminishing of the fire of God in our heart. back to 1 Thessalonians 5 and notice some things. In the context of all this, verses 11 to 25, Paul gives us, this is contextual now, okay? Paul gives us spiritual exercises that are critical to a walk with God that's always on its high. A Christian life that's on fire for God. I'm going to pick up some things. I'm going to extract some things out of here that you'll understand where Paul's coming at. Because Paul, as he writes this, is not being haphazard. He's not just throwing a pithy statement here and a pithy statement there. He's writing the context because he's writing this as a spiritual prescription for a church where he saw that the fire was starting to miss. You know what, what happened there? You know, those early days, they were on fire for God. But after a while, they got used to going to church Sunday morning and Sunday night. And they got used to preaching of the word of God. And they got used to winning souls. And they got used to seeing spiritual authority in their lives. And they got used to reporting for this, reporting for that. And they got used to those things. And then after a period of time, and someone started mourning, and someone started grieving, and someone started getting a critical spirit, they got used to that as well. And over a period of time, Paul saw some things that the flame was not burning as hot as it used to be. And the fire that used to be there was not as hot as it used to be. And the fervency was gone. And there were people missing church. And the people just sitting back and they're just analyzing the message instead of absorbing the message. And I'm telling you tonight, if you look at these verses of scripture, he's giving us all these things to help us as a spiritual remedy. We've got to be very careful that we quench not the spirit, that we don't throw cold water on the flame of God, that we don't throw dirt on the, on the spirit of God, that we don't smother him with this fire blanket that puts out that fire. Look at some things he talks about here. Look what he says here in verse, verse, um, verse 20. Despise not prophesying. Now we know prophecies and use the context there at that time meant the, the foretelling of, of, of things, of the future. But we know that, the, uh, but we know also it also refers to the foretelling, the preaching of God's word. And he says, despise not prophecy. Can I help you tonight? If you enjoyed the preaching that you heard last week, let me tell you tonight, you ought to enjoy preaching all the time. You ought to enjoy preaching all the time. If you're not enjoying preaching, you've quenched the spirit. The spirit's been quenched. Listen, the, God doesn't quench his own spirit. The devil doesn't have to do anything about it because it's up to you and I to determine if the spirit gets quenched or not. We need to guard the flame. We need to protect the flame. We need to keep putting the right. Listen, if you're not under preaching, you're not getting fire for your soul. 
If you're not in a preaching, you're not going to know what thus saith the Lord. If you're not in a preaching, you're not going to be moved about prophecy. If you're not in a preaching, you're not going to be moved for souls. If you're not in a preaching, you're not going to be moved for missions as well. There too, when he says despise not prophecy, notice something else here. He says pray without ceasing. And I will tell you, you can trace and I can trace the moment the fire starts to diminish. So I'll trace our prayer life, our time in prayer, our emphasis. And I'm going to tell you tonight, the more we preach on prayer, the harder it will be to pray. The more difficult it is to pray. The more difficult it is to isolate time to pray. When the Spirit is quenched, souls are not, aren't getting saved. When the Spirit is quenched, the church's influence diminishes. Look at something else he says here. He says in verse 14, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient towards all men. You know what he's saying there? Pay attention to the body. Listen, we get so preoccupied with our cliques, we get so preoccupied with our little group, we get so preoccupied with our little things that we just, we just burst our way out of church. We come in late, we leave early, we're, the, we're the, when the last one's in, when the first one's out. We come in, I understand we have schedules and all that, but I'm saying when it's a consistent pattern like that, and we don't care about the body, we only care about our own little clique, our own little thing there, then all of a sudden what happens there, we forget in verse 14, Paul says there, hey, there's other people in the body who need your help, and other people in the body that fit the description of those, that he says, look at, warn them they're unruly, because he says, you know what, the unruly people, they're hanging around scorners like themselves, and they're all getting their thing, and they're laughing about things, they're sitting outside when they ought to be under preaching, and he says, you need to warn the unruly, you need to tell them every now and then, hey, you're not right with God, you're not subordinated to God, you're not in submission to God, and he says, listen, when you're not under submission, by the way, that follows verses 11 and 12, we're, verses 12 and 13, when we're not under submission or proper spiritual authority, it's not long before the fire starts going out. The fire's diminishing. He says, quench up the spirit of God. He says, look at here in verse 14, he says, uh, comfort the feeble-minded, the weak, weak in soul, the ones who get easily discouraged. Hey, do you know who those people are in church? Do you know who those people are in church? You know how to tell when you shake somebody's hand if this person is discouraged? They need a word of chair. They need a word of prayer from somebody, man or woman, boy or girl. When the spirit is quenched, the church doesn't want to exercise faith. Spirit is quenched, the church it gets an issue on fire about faith, promise, mission. Give it three months, and as that fire starts to diminish, they're no longer participating in faith, promise, missions. When the spirit is quenched, the fire is inhibited. Someone said we're not praying without ceasing. There's evidence that our praying has lost heart. It's just not there like it used to be. Paul said in verse 17, he says, he, in verse 18, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. The opposite of a thankful spirit is a critical spirit, a complaining spirit. And so as we close tonight, we'll see the Holy Spirit's a, a, our comforting inhabitant. We see the Holy Spirit desires as the will of God a controlling influence. And we see tonight that we, we're not very careful. We see a careless inhibiting. But go back to verse 19 one more time and we're done. Paul is addressing the question we began with. How do you keep the fire going? How do you keep it bright? How do you keep it burning? Very simply, I'm going to paraphrase it. Don't put it out. Amen. Don't put it out. Quench not the spirit. Don't throw cold water on it. Leave the fire alone. He says, instead of quenching spirit, feed the, 
feed it with the right fuel. Put some wood on the fire, amen? Put some fuel on it. Stir up the embers a little bit more. Get some more fuel on it. Get it burning. Don't, don't let the fire go out. Kind of like what Warren Wiersbe said. The fire of the Spirit must not go out on the altar of our hearts. We must maintain that devotion to Christ that motivates and energizes our lives. And let's look at an Old Testament example. Go with me to Leviticus chapter 6, please, for just a moment. We're almost done. We'll get you out of here. Leviticus chapter 6. In Leviticus 6, would you notice this, this um, command God gave to Moses and Aaron? And in verse 8, in Leviticus 6, verse 8, third book of the Bible, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. It is the burnt offering because of the burning upon the altar all night unto the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be burning in it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen breeches, and he shall put, uh, he shall put upon his flesh, and he take up the ashes which the fire is consumed with the burnt offering on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. And then he shall put off his garments and put on other garments and carry forth the ashes out without the camp unto a clean place. In other words, he's saying, you're, you're going to be adding fuel and you're going to have ashes. You, you need to, you, this work of the ministry, this work of, of, of the burnt offering, you need to be dressed appropriately. And as you're dealing with the ashes, that which is burned up, you're going to take it outside the camp. That's where they took the, the, the skins and things like that. And, and, and it's a representation of taking sin out the camp. He says, get it out there. And he says, then he says, go back. Verse 13, and he says, And the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it, it shall not be put out, and the priest shall burn every wood on it every morning, and lay the burnt offering in order upon it, and he shall burn thereon the fat of the peace offerings. Notice verse 13, the fire shall ever be burning upon the altar, it shall never go out. Now the idea as he's writing this is right there from Leviticus chapter 6. He's talking about the burnt offering, which is the picture of the dedication of life of the believer. He says, listen, we're going to set the fire in the evening, and it's going to burn through the night, and then you're going to take the ashes and take it outside the camp, but you're going to go back to there when you're done with that you're going to go back to that same altar and the fire is still burning he says keep it going add more fuel he says the fire is not supposed to go out night and day can i tell you something tonight brother sister in christ god wants that fire of the holy spirit burning continuously in your life and mine are you burning are you on fire it irks me and people say man the preacher's on fire how about you Where's your fire? Stop reading the New Evangelical Jug and get back in the Bible and realize the Bible tells us we're to be fiery Christians for God. A peculiar people, zealous of good works. Pray without ceasing and the fire will keep burning. Read God's word until your heart burns. Make so many a constant priority. William Booth. Founded the Salvation Army, which at that time was mainly a soul-winning entity. The streets of London went through a lot of persecution. His, his men, the army, those he called his Salvation Army men. A lot of them got beat up a lot of times. In 1904, King Edward VII invited him to Buckingham Palace. And it was time to acknowledge... William Booth, because he's 75 years of age, and they saw the fruit of that ministry. Conversions, drunkards getting lives turned around, prostitutes getting lives turned around. And King Edward VII said this, he said, you are doing a good work, a great work, General Booth. And he took out a book and he said, sir, you're, would you sign my book? Would you sign my book? 
I, I want a lasting remembrance of this day. And William Booth, very quietly and humbly, took out a pen. He received the book. He wrote this down. Some men's ambitions are for art. Some men's ambitions are for gold. Some men's ambitions are for success. My ambition is for the souls of men. William Booth had a fire burning his soul. At his funeral, the lines lined up all the way down the streets of London. The man who got and saved him from his work, crying and grieving the loss of William Booth, fell on that casket bier. As he fell on it, he cried out, says, do it again, Lord. Do it again. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. There was a fire in that man. Quench not the spirit. Quench not the spirit. Make church attendance a priority. Forsake our sins and have a holy, separated life unto God. Enjoy preaching. Rejoice evermore. Let's practice on being thankful. Withdraw your fellowship from critical people. Say, stop. Don't want to hear it anymore. Stop. And if they're a teacher, you ought to tell them, hey, you're a teacher. What are you, crying? What are you complaining about? Stop. That quenches the fire. Pray. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, there's a section there in Pilgrim's Progress where John Bunyan wrote about a place where a fire was burning against the wall. Using his narrative as he's describing it, he saw this fire burning, and he saw a shadowy figure pouring water on it. But amazingly, the more water this shadowy figure was pouring on the flame, the flame did not diminish. The flame was getting higher and higher and higher. And as he started to look at it very carefully, he recognized that next to it was another figure, which was as bright as light. And he discusses, he says in, the, in that section of his book, Pilgrim's Progress, that that shadowy figure is the devil who wants to pour cold water on that fire. But he saw that the other figure, which was light, represents the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ was the one that, making that, that was making the fire go higher and higher and higher because he kept pouring oil on that. Listen, tonight, we need the oil of the Holy Spirit to saturate you and saturate me and overflow us tonight so that the fire of God never diminishes and never goes out. I'm just saying tonight, revive us again. Fill each heart with thy love. May so be rekindled with fire from above. Quench not the Spirit. What do I do if I've lost the spirit? Get it where you lost it. Get it back where you lost it. Get the fire of God. Quench not the spirit. Don't let the fire go out. Don't be the reason why the fire goes out of your heart. Have that zeal, that fervency for God to work in your